0: Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, that preaching is, in a sense, uh, getting low, ducking down behind a text of Scripture and pressing it out to your people in the power of your spirit. I thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the centerpiece of this message and, and, truth be told, the the centerpiece of our lives and of this church. So would you show yourself, Lord, to be worthy, to be the hero of this sermon. We thank you for this extraordinary place to be in the the second Sunday of Advent in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Come now and, and show us what you're up to with this text in our church. We will thank you for it. For Jesus' glory and in his great name we ask it. Amen. Last week we began our Advent season exploration of one of the great gospel tracts in all the Bible, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. In these chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, the Apostle John describes a wild and vivid vision that Jesus gave John of God's own throne room and the worship that takes place there in heaven. Uh, chapter divisions, as you may know, are not original with any of the books of the Bible, including Revelation, but that doesn't mean that John, as he wrote this text, left us rudderless. Um, as a matter of fact, even without chapter designations, we could easily chart our course through these two portions of Scripture, chapters 4 and 5, uh, when we see what John saw. Uh, four times in Revelation four and five, John tells us that something caught his gaze. Notice in chapter four, verse one, we read, "After this, I looked." Revelation five verse one says, "Then I saw." Likewise, chapter five verse six writes, he writes, "I saw." And then finally, in chapter five, verse 11, he says, "Then I looked." Now, you wouldn't know it from our English versions, but it's the same phrase in Greek each time. It's the exact same phrase. Sometimes it's translated saw, sometimes it's translated looked. The point is, is that John had four different scenes in front of him, and taken together, these four different scenes compose the basic drama of the message of the gospel, That's why we can think of Revelation 4 and 5 as a gospel tract or maybe as a gospel drama that occurs in four acts successively. If you're going to understand the gospel, then you need to know at least this much. Four truths. Truths about God, truths about man, truths about Christ, and about our response to him. Last week, we launched out with a study of chapter 4. It was where we learned the truth about God. And it's there in your outline, but here's here's the truth, that God is worthy of our worship, but until we see him as he is, we will never savor him as he deserves. God is worthy of our worship, but until we see him, and that language is intentional, see him, because John saw him, until we see him as John did, we'll never savor him, him as he deserves. So this Advent season, may God do only what he can. May he open the eyes of our hearts to see what John saw. And what John captured for us in writing is this, that first, that God is a holy king. Secondly, that God is an eternal king. And third, that God is a creator king. Those are the truths that we must know about God. The gospel is a message from God. It's a message that has its origin with God. I quoted from J.I. Packer at the beginning of the the worship gathering from his book, Knowing God. He, He also says this in the same book. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So the gospel is a message that starts with God. Now this week we're going to take step two in that message. And step two is the truth about us, about human beings. The truth about ourselves as creatures of this creator God. The truth about ourselves as image bearers of this God. And, in full disclosure, the truth about ourselves as rebels against this God. So this second Sunday of Advent, we're going to seek to bring into sharp focus what the Bible says about sin. The biblical doctrine of sin. And you might be thinking, that doesn't sound very Christmassy to me. And the only thing I can say in response is that it ought to. It ought to. Remove the biblical teaching on sin, and you hobble some of the most cherished Christmas carols of all time. We sang some of the lines earlier this morning. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Isaac Watts said, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, who knows the last phrase, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Or uh, William Dix wrote, Why lies he there in such mean a state where ox and lamb are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Or who could forget John Dwight's haunting lines. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. So according to the hymn writers and the Christmas carolers, the biblical doctrine of sin and a proper emphasis on it is what contributes to such a spectacular celebration on Christmas morning. It's the reason for the reason for the season. Let's not forget that the angel Gabriel told Joseph in Matthew 1.21 that Mary will bear a son. She shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We dare not look away from the diagnosis of our condition this Advent. If we do, we run the risk of misunderstanding the reason for the season. So here's the big idea today. Uh, No one in all of creation is worthy to explain, much less execute, the full counsel of God except Jesus Christ. No one in all of creation is worthy to explain, much less to execute the full counsel of God, except Jesus Christ. I think that's the teaching of Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and we're just going to unfold it in two steps. Bad news first, good news second. So let's start with the diagnosis of our condition. Let's begin with the bad news We need to stare the verdict full in the face if we're going to apply for mercy and appeal for mercy. So this Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see that first, left to ourselves, we are all magnificent moral failures. That's the first point today. Left to ourselves, we are all magnificent moral failures. Follow along with me, and I'll read the first two verses of Revelation 5. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And break its seals. Revelation 5.1 is the first time in this narrative. Where God, the one who is seated on the throne. Where God is given a remotely human description. John speaks of the hand of God. You see it there in verse 1? And not just the hand, but the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, we know that Scripture teaches that God the Father is pure spirit. He doesn't actually have a, a form. He has no physical form, human or otherwise. So every physical description of God by the apostle here is his apostolic effort to tell us something about the character or the attributes of God. And in the first century, the right hand represented power and authority. So once again, as last week, John is appealing to the utter sovereignty of God. And with God's almighty power, within his almighty power is a scroll. Trust you see it there, verses 1 and 2. A scroll that John says is written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now there is... A fair amount of healthy discussion among scholars as to what this scroll actually is. Now, some of the mystery can be eliminated if we just simply follow the book of Revelation as it unfolds in chapters 6 and 7 and 8. This scroll, we discover, contains the details of the judgment of God yet to come on the earth. In a sense, it's the order of events that will usher in the the culmination of history, the end of history. And that's just the evidence from the opening of the seals themselves. As to the actual content of the scroll, that's a bit of a mystery. Is it the Lamb's book of life that we see at the end of the book of Revelation? Does the scroll contain maybe the, the decrees of God that are yet unknown to us? In any event, the description of the scroll would have been familiar enough to John's first century audience. The picture is that of an ancient double-sided contract deed. This would have been familiar to his first readers. And the, the seven seals represent absolute secrecy. So the mind of God, the plans of God, the very counsels of God, the Almighty, are written down in this scroll and sealed with none to look on it. Now, something else uh, that very few, if any, of our English translations bring across uh, would be this in verse 1, that the scroll is in his right hand. See that there, in his right hand. Except that the word that John uses in the original isn't in, but on his hand. See. Okay, in, on, what's the difference? It's subtle, but I think it's, it's significant. Uh, one scholar, Grant Osborne, put it this way. The scroll is on... Rather than in the hand of God, thus picturing it lying on God's open palm. God is waiting for someone to take the scroll from him. And then we read in verse 2 who can take the scroll? What's he waiting for? Someone who's worthy. It's the second of five references to this word in two chapters. Verse two, John says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll or to break its seals? Who is worthy to explain or to execute the full counsel of the holy, eternal Creator God? Who is worthy to preach or to practice? This word? Who is able to understand and apply God's authoritative, infallible, inerrant word? Who is worthy? And in verse 3, the silence is deafening, isn't it? John says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, verse 3 describes in graphic form just how comprehensive this no one is. Let's take a look. John says in verse 3, no one in heaven, not Michael, not Gabriel, not one among the legions upon legions of perfect, sinless angels in heaven is worthy to open the scroll. So worthy doesn't just point to sinlessness, for the inhabitants of heaven are all sinless. Worthy doesn't just refer to moral worth, but to authoritative status. Worthy would take into account the idea of raw ruling power and position. And no one in heaven ranks high enough to open the scroll. Secondly, John says no one on earth is worthy either. Who's that? Well, that's us. That's us. That's all of humanity at once. It's amazing who we get excited about in this world, isn't it? I I went to Forbes.com the other day and just scrolled through the names of the most powerful human beings on the planet. These days... People flexing their power would be people like Vladimir Putin, our President Barack Obama, Pope Francis, Bill Gates. And of course, we can add other folks to the list, anyone who may be important to you, entertainers, athletes, politicians, doctors, lawyers, professors, leaders of various stripes. No one. No one drawing breath on planet earth today, is worthy to open this scroll. Finally, John says in verse 3 that no one under the earth is worthy. Who's that? Well, these are the folks that we tend to get all worked up about when we think about spiritual warfare. Our great enemy, Satan, and all of his demonic host. He's powerful, but he's not this powerful. He's not worthy in this sense. We give him his due, but no more, no further. Satan and the demonic host are unfit and unable and unworthy to open this scroll. Well, what's John's response? You see it there in verse 4. It's desperate. John says, I began to weep loudly, for no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, when you realize what verses 1 to 4 of Revelation 5 are saying, it, it begins to take your breath away. Every religion in the history of this planet is fiercely dedicated to the defense and proposition that we can either work our way to God or perhaps that our condition apart from God is not really that desperate after all. And those are two deadly calculations. According to Revelation 5, verses 1 to 4, we have a different story that explains how things are. How are things on this score in the church today? Not out in the world, but in the church. When we think about the doctrine of sin, one Christian leader observes... As I look out across the Christian landscape, I think it fair to say that they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Jeremiah 6.14. Leaders should be helping the church to know and feel the seriousness of indwelling sin, how to fight it and kill it. Instead, the depth and complexity and ugliness and danger of sin in professing Christians is either minimized or is psychologized as a symptom of woundedness rather than corruption. This is a tragically light healing. It's a tragedy because in minimizing the nature and seriousness of our sin, we become greater victims of it. We are, in fact, not healing ourselves. Those, this is the money quote, those who say, They already feel bad enough without being told about the corruptions of indwelling sin misread the path to peace. I believe that with all my heart. We cannot say this often enough. Uh, The minute that we think we know our corruption well enough, we rob the gospel of its power. You've heard me quote John Owen before on this. Owen says, Grace will not seem high until the soul be laid very low. The issue in the Bible is not how high can you reach. The issue in the Bible is how low can you go. No one in in all of creation is worthy to explain, much less to execute the full counsel of God. So this Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see that left to ourselves, we are all magnificent moral failures. Now, that's the first step of the gospel. Can you get that low this morning? If you can, I've got really good news for you. Second point today. Christ is a mighty, mighty conqueror. This Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see that Christ is a mighty, mighty conqueror. Verse five, just as the bottom's getting ready to fall out and John doesn't know where to turn, he writes, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The next week, we're going to see overwhelming evidence of Christ's deity, of his divinity. We'll notice this week some clear indications of the other side, of his humanity. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. These are two historical, ethnic, flesh-and-blood designations that speak of Christ's human nature, at least. Both images are found deep in the Old Testament. The line of the tribe of Judah is from uh, Jacob's pronouncements over his son in Genesis 49, and uh, the root of David is found in Isaiah chapter 11. The second of these images, Jesus as the root of David, may actually be a reference to the divinity of Christ. Um, Think about it. Branches shoot out and proceed from, but roots precede. Roots support. This may be a reference to Christ's divinity. Christ came after David. On the other hand, he is the one from whom David comes. He's the root of David. May be a reference to the deity of Christ, in any case, this much is certain. There is a man, there is a human being who actually is worthy within the created order to both explain and to execute the full counsel of God. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And this is none other than Jesus Christ. So let's, let's think about the image of a, of a lion for a moment. Or does that conjure up? John is saying that Jesus is the king. He is a victorious, conquering warrior, victorious over death and Satan. He has power and strength and ability to break the back of sin in such a way that verse 5 says that he has conquered. He has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now let's put points one and two together, verses one and five together, and, and notice something. Jesus has conquered where every one of us has been defeated. Jesus has earned the very thing that we have lost. Jesus has succeeded where each of us has epically failed. Now these these bare facts alone, by themselves, are not the gospel. If we were to leave it here, we would be like a classroom full of students where Jesus is the only one with a passing grade, and not just a passing grade, but a hundred. How much do you like that guy? Gets that grade. Wish I had that grade. We have failed. He has conquered. That's not good news for us unless Jesus were willing to offer us his perfect record. Wouldn't that be good news? Jesus has conquered. And Romans 8:37 says that we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We read in Revelation 12:11 that they have conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Not our worth, but his worth. And the scripture says it can be ours today. I don't know what you're looking for for this Christmas. I don't know what's on your list. But if you haven't received this, every other gift pales in comparison. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, today you can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to a holy God. Nothing in your hand you bring him. Simply to his cross you cling. Christ is a mighty conqueror. He has succeeded where where we have failed. He's a mighty, mighty conqueror. There's so much more we want to say, but to do so is going to step on the toes of Seth's text next week. So let me... Let me wrap up at this point and say this, that no one in all of creation is worthy to explain, much less to execute the full counsel of God. This flies in the face of every religious system in the planet, except for the Christian faith, which turns away from its own salvation project and trusts Christ alone. So this Advent season, may God open the eyes of each of our hearts to see that left to ourselves, we are magnificent moral failures. And secondly, that Christ is a mighty, mighty conqueror. Now, next week, as I mentioned, Seth is going to take us into the third scene of this four-part vision as he unfolds the centerpiece of these chapters. The Lamb standing as though slain. We'll pick it up then. This week I encourage you as you meet with your community groups to explore the first half of the gospel.